Welcome to the Living Rock Podcast. David did a fantastic job a few weeks ago in September of setting the scene in Corinthians and looking at some of the the main themes that we find in this book and why they're really important and relevant for us today, where we live and where we work and where we spend our lives. And um, I just want to pick up on one of those themes today and unpack it a little bit for us because David talked about three W's, that the Corinthians and us are weighty, wealthy and waiting. And David was very careful to qualify that weighty meant something very specific. (laughs) Maybe not where immediately our minds went. Weighty, wealthy, and waiting. And today I want to unpack a little bit of the wealth that we have in Christ and the fact that we are wealthy. And to do that, we're going to be spending some time in the first chapter of Corinthians. Over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking in the first sort of four chapters of Corinthians in terms of the themes that are dealt with. And apart from the opening themes that we've looked at in the first sort of nine, ten verses, today we're going to be moving on, looking at verses 18 through to 30, so we'll come to that shortly. But David just before, sorry, Paul just before that turns to talk about the divisions that he'd had occasion to write the letter for. And we'll return back to that because that sort of picked up again in chapter two and through to three and four. So we'll come back to some of those things. But we're still looking at some of these things that the Corinthians had that Paul was reminding them of when he wrote to them and the fact that they were wealthy. And one of the things that Paul introduces, and for us it's probably a little bit of a learning curve because we didn't live in Corinth and we don't know what life was like for the Corinthians. They were believers like us, but maybe we didn't share some of the cultural background. So we've been learning a little bit what it was like to live in Corinth and what the culture was like in Corinth. And there are lots of parallels between the culture that we found in Corinth at that time and the culture that we're living in today. And that's why it's really helpful and relevant for us to know these things and to understand the parallels and to understand how the gospel that we carry speaks into every culture and every period of time in history. It speaks just as relevantly today as it did then, and it will always do so because it's the eternal word of God. And one of the things that we've got here is a contrast between the wisdom culture of Corinth and the wealth of God's church in Corinth the wisdom culture, I want to spend a little bit of time just to start with really sort of discovering what this wisdom culture was about, where it came from and why it was having an impact on the believers and some of the sort of key differences that I want us to consider today between worldly culture because Corinth was very much a sort of a microcosm of worldly culture and lots of things still apply today that we see there and the culture of the kingdom of God. And I just want to say this, for all of us as believers, we live in a culture, we're surrounded by a worldly culture that is often diametrically opposed to the culture of the kingdom of God. That's nothing to be worried about. In that circumstance, the gospel always thrives because the gospel is always a message of hope because that worldly culture is not of God and ultimately it's always doomed to failure. And if you're a student of history, you will know that worldly cultures come and they go. They rise and they fall. And they will never persist because they're not founded on the principles of the kingdom of God. There's only one kingdom whose increase will never stop. And that's the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And that's the culture of that kingdom. So it's not something to be concerned about, but it is something that we should be aware about. And the apostles writing in the New Testament were often equipping the saints to say, look, We don't want you to be unaware or ignorant of the world around us. 
We want you to understand what's going on in the world and we want you to understand what's going on behind those things because there are spiritual powers and principalities that are still fighting God and still hanging on even though it's a certainty that they will be beaten and subjugated and put under the feet of Christ. We know that because God said it's going to happen. So it will happen, but they're not going to go down without a fight which means they'll try and exert as much influence and control over this world as they can. And our job is to be the voice of God into each generation to say, this is what God says. This is the culture of the kingdom of God. And that's why all of this is really important for us. And I hope an encouragement to us, an exhortation to us in terms of how we can live and how we can be effective in the world around us. So I just want to spend a little bit of time unpacking Really, this wisdom culture. So if you just put the next slide up, Pete. That's the title. Next slide. Thank you. The wisdom of Corinth. We're just going to consider this. Just going to try and give you a three-minute potted history of Greek philosophy. (laughs) What could go wrong? I don't know. (laughs) Very broadly speaking, we're talking about philosophical debate and investigation that have been going on for hundreds of years at the point Paul is writing to these saints in Corinth. You maybe have heard of Homer and his tales and the Odyssey and all of that stuff. That was about eight or nine hundreds before this. And, it, and that was part of a, a culture over hundreds of years of Greek philosophers pursuing wisdom and pursuing the meaning of life. And lots of other people came along into the 4th or 5th century BC. You've then got people like Socrates, who you've probably heard of, and Plato and Aristotle. And all of these were philosophers that were venerated in their day. And some of their philosophizing and their conclusions and the principles that they established in philosophy have permeated much of Western culture for the 2,000 to 2,500 years that followed. So this stuff is really important, and often you're being influenced by something out in the world. You don't, we don't always know where that came from. We don't always know where that influence started. We don't know really the importance sometimes of this Greek wisdom and how it influenced the whole world. The Roman Empire that then grew up embraced all of this because it was an empire that embraced cultures and tried to accommodate cultures in order to propagate itself. And it was embedded then in the Roman culture. The gods were absorbed by the the Romans, and they just renamed them, but took on the same gods. So these things have have continued to our day. And to sum it up, all of these philosophers were trying to answer one question, which is, how do we live well? How do we live well? It's a good question, isn't it? It's a noble pursuit, isn't it? To investigate how we can live well in this life. What's the meaning of life? What are we here for? What's the ultimate purpose of life? How can we live well? And all of these investigations and all of these discussions over hundreds of years started to focus on something which the Greeks called eudaimonia. Eudaimonia, I'm not going to spell it for you. It simply meant, literally meant, good spirit. But it was another word for what they would call thriving. And latterly, it then became called happiness. So in other words, they were trying to investigate how do we find true happiness? How do we live well? How are we happy in life? And all of these hundreds of years became focused upon the pursuit of knowledge and the application of that knowledge, which the Greeks called wisdom. 
So the pursuit of knowledge and knowing about the world and knowing about the unseen world sometimes, some of them would, would believe in that as well, but then the, the practical and the theoretical application of that knowledge. And that's what the Greeks called wisdom. And they venerated that above all things. So the highest goal in life was the pursuit of wisdom. And in that, the Greeks believe, lay true happiness and true purpose. That we could find our true purpose in life, our highest purpose, our highest calling could be found in wisdom. This is the culture that Paul came to. This is the culture that a church was born into. And this is the culture that pervaded the city of Corinth and all of the um, wisdom uh, that, that pervaded that thinking of the day, if you like. And there are kind of a couple of aspects to this Greek wisdom culture which I want to focus on because I think they're helpful in drawing a contrast between where the Corinthians found themselves in the culture of the day and the kingdom of God. First one of these is this. I'm going to quote Aristotle, who was sort of those names I mentioned. He was the later of them, if you like. He didn't always agree with those that went before him. Uh, Socrates and Plato didn't always agree with them. He had his own theories about what eudaimonia was and how you get there. But he said this, and this is really important. He said, happiness is the meaning and the purpose of life, the whole aim and end of human existence. I'm just going to read that one more time. You ready? Happiness, eudaimonia, is the meaning and the purpose of life, the whole aim and end of human existence. What are we here for? To be happy. We are here to find fulfilment and happiness. Now, on the face of it, that sounds pretty good, doesn't it? There's nothing malicious about that. That sounds something you could build a society on. Well, that's what we have built a society on, is the pursuit of happiness. And on the face of it, it seems absolutely fine. We'll come back to that. The second thing is this. Eudaimonia is within our power to lay hold of. Now that's a very simple statement, but it's a really important statement. Just think about that. Happiness is within your power to lay hold of. So you have what you need, you have the means within yourself to lay hold of happiness and fulfilment. And those are two key tenets, if you like, of this Greek wisdom culture. Happiness is the goal of life. It's not the means to something else it is the end and the goal and the and the means to get there are within us we can get ourselves there kingdom of God would think differently about both those things and it's one of the key differences and things we need to understand if we go back to Acts 17 if you remember when we introduced this series we looked at I'm not asking you to turn there we looked at Acts 18 and that's um, Luke describing how Paul comes to Corinth <clears throat> he makes make certain contacts and acquaintances, and then the church is established. But in Acts 17, Paul is in Athens, so he's making his way round, and he's in Athens, and he's standing before the Areopagus, which was the, it was a council, and it was set up on a hill, literally means hill, it was set up on a hill, and it's where the philosophers and all those in the Greek wisdom would gather and debate and argue. And David mentioned a few weeks ago how there would be boasting contests, do you remember that, David? They would have boasting contests, which just seems a bit ridiculous to me, but... Uh, that's just what they did. Um, and they were really talking about 
those that could most eloquently express the wisdom of the day. Those who, who could maybe make the best arguments and win each other over. And this was a place of debate and argument, and Paul walks right into this place. And he's, he's a man that's come and he's brought a gospel that is very different to what everybody is saying. And Paul being Paul, who was a schooled and studious man, very well educated, thought, okay, I'm going to have to speak their language. Because Paul said, I'm going to be all things to all men, all things to all people. So Paul went in there speaking their language and said, look, this unknown God that you've erected something to, I'm going to tell you who he is. But there's some things that you need to know first. There's some things that are really important. The first thing you need to know is this. This God is the one who gives life to everything and everyone. He gives you life and he sustains you. He doesn't need you in any way. You are the creature. He is the creator. He sustains you. He doesn't need you for anything. He doesn't need you to build a temple so that he can live in it. He doesn't need you to make an image of him to look at. He's here. And unfortunately, if you look back over many cultures up to that point and since, the tendency of mankind is to either build idols, physical things, things in the natural to say, this is what we think God is. And in other words, to define God in that way, you can't define God, you can't put him in a box, you can't make an image of him. He's just not containable in that way. Or ideas. And the Greeks were very much about the ideas, their intellectual ideas, and that became an idol to them. Whether it's idols or ideas, Paul said, you can't find God that way. But God has made himself known because now he sent one who represents him, Jesus Christ. And it's his gospel that I carry. And he's revealed himself. And now that he's shown you what life is all about, he's now commanding everyone everywhere to repent and come through Jesus in their search for God. And one day he will judge the whole world through, as he says, this man of righteousness, I think Paul says. Through Jesus. He will judge the whole world through him. Now what's telling is the reaction of these wise philosophers. The good thing is some of them believed him. Some of them just mocked him. But the conclusion that, that I think most of them came to is, that's very interesting. We'll hear more about this from you later. We've got some more discussions to be had. And what's there in that reaction is that for these people, they considered themselves the arbiters of truth. They had a culture whereby they decided what was right and wrong. They decided what was the truth and what isn't the truth because they looked within for their answers. They weren't looking to God. They'd found their answers within. Everything I need is here. All I need to do is sit and think about it long enough and I'll come up with all the answers. And this is the culture that Paul is writing into. It's the culture that was pervading the church. When Paul arrives in Corinth, what's interesting to me is he takes a different tack. He doesn't come in and start talking about philosophy and meeting them in this place of debate. Instead, at the beginning of chapter 2, Paul says this. He said, I didn't come to you with wise words. I didn't try and persuade you. But I came to you to know nothing except Christ crucified. So Paul cuts across all of that worldly wisdom and he said, that's all rubbish. 
All of it will get you nowhere. The only thing you need to know is that God has sent his son. He's been crucified and raised from the dead. And that is true wisdom. The wisdom that you've been looking for. And I think what's, for me, what's a key takeaway in that is, what is the gospel that we carry? What is the gospel that we are holding out to the culture around us? Is it one that's based on wise words? Maybe a a persuasive argument about God, about Jesus. Maybe we're relying on other things. Maybe we're relying on the invitation into a lifestyle and philosophy. Maybe we're relying on the invitation into a great and wonderful community. We often talk about this being the family of God, and it is. We talk about this being the community of God, and it is. But those things in themselves are not the gospel. And our gospel must never be founded and must never be confused for living in God's community. Because that's not any way to come into God's kingdom. The gospel is the cross of Jesus Christ. And worldly culture is based on self-betterment. If I can put it that way. Self-betterment. When you come into the kingdom of God, this isn't about improving who you are. This isn't something that's going to add to you and make you a better person. This is about surrender. It's not about self-fulfillment. It's not about self-betterment. Self is left at the door. Self is left at the cross. And what comes afterwards is surrender. That's our gospel. That's what we carry. And it's really important that we keep ourselves on track with that. Because the culture that we live in is looking for the other type of gospel. Culture that we live in is very drawn to a nice, cosy, comfortable, that sounds nice, that sounds like it'll add to my life and make me a better person. And if we ever hear that, we need to say, really sorry, but that's not what I'm holding out to you. That's not what, that's not what we're about. We're about surrendering everything. And there's more to say on that. But it's just really important that we are aware of the gospel we're carrying and how we present it to the world. Because it matters how people come into the kingdom of God. Because how you come into the kingdom of God and whether the right foundations are laid, then impact the rest of your Christian walk. Impact years of your life. And I've met so many Christians that have not had a good foundation and have had persistent troubles and problems that then takes a long time to try and sort out and, and, and sort of deal with, if you like. So it's really important for us. So that's given us a little foundation about the wisdom culture, the Greek wisdom culture. And what I want to talk about in contrast to that is the wealth of Christ. The wealth of Christ, what did they have? We're going to read from uh, verse 18 of 1 Corinthians. And Paul is talking now, he's just talked about the divisions in the church. And he returns back to that, and we'll, we'll go back to that at a later date, but... The cause of the divisions was this wisdom culture. That's where it was all starting from because people were promoting themselves and some people were putting on a pedestal others and they were doing so in an intellectual way and then trying to use that as a place of authority to win an argument. Paul's saying, look, this is your old life. You're just going back to the way you used to think and act, but you need to throw it off. And he starts to talk now about the difference between this wisdom culture And the gospel that we carry. He says in verse 18, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us 
who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God that through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers, and sisters, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Paul asked the question, where did all this philosophizing get you? The answer is nowhere. What a waste of time. And there's a reason why. With good reason, God stopped the wisdom of man being the path back to him. So that no one can boast in his presence. So that no one can boast in his presence. What does that mean? Why is it important? Well, we know the root of sin is pride. We know the root of sin is to, to say to ourselves, this is what sin is in essence... God, I don't need you. I have all that I need within me. And I can make myself more. And that essentially is what happened in Satan's heart. And then when he came into the garden, he told a lie to Adam and Eve so that they could embrace the same thing. And sin followed. And we're living with the legacy of that, even to this day. So God said, that cannot be the way that you come back to me. Instead... It'll be a way that will completely cut across, completely seem like foolishness to a wise world. I'll send my son and he'll die the worst possible death and I'll raise him from the dead. Who saw that coming? Well, not these Greek philosophers, I can tell you that much. <laughs> but that's because it's the wisdom of God. And then, God, and then um, Paul says something here in verse 30. Just look at that in your Bibles. He says this. <clears throat> And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. And there's three words there that are at the heart of the culture of the kingdom of God. Because of him. Three simple words that sum up everything we're about. 
because of him. It's fantastic. It's not because of anything else or anyone else. It's because of him. Everything we have is because of him. And, um, you know, when John wrote his gospel, he talked about Jesus as the logos, which was another Greek term. meant lots of different things. It's a, a word used in lots of different ways. But essentially what he was alluding to was the fact that philosophers were on a search for this reason for everything that exists. And that's the logos. What's the reason, the principle in the universe, really behind everything that exists? And John says, here he is. He's the Logos. He's the reason for everything that exists. He's the key to life. He's God's wisdom. He's true wisdom. Eudaimonia is not within our power. And very importantly, it is not the goal and ultimate purpose for human beings. We're not here for self-fulfillment and we're not here with self-empowerment. We're not here for self-fulfillment, folks. It might sound counterintuitive, but the secret is this. That's actually in Christ. We're here to glorify him and in the so doing, we find the ultimate happiness and fulfillment. And that was the wisdom of God. That was the truth in the beginning. That was the thing hidden since the beginning of the ages because of the shroud of sin that had settled on mankind. But God broke through that and says, here it is again. I'm showing you, you were made to find happiness in serving me and in worshipping me and enjoying me because that's what worship is, by the way. Worshipping God is enjoying him. Just turn with me to Colossians 1, 15 to 17. This is a statement which I think you'll know well. Colossians 1, verse 15. This is a statement about all of creation. And I think about us more than anything else in creation. Because we are the pinnacle of creation made in God's image. Verse 15. Speaking of Christ he says this he is the image of the invisible god the firstborn of all creation for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth visible and invisible whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities all things were created through him and for him and he is before all things and in him all things Hold together. It really is all about him, isn't it? (laughs) That's what Paul is telling us here. We were made by him. We were made through him. Somehow through Christ, all of us were made. He was God's blueprint to make us. We were made for him, to give him pleasure, to serve him, to work with him. And not only that, but moment by moment, we're held together in him. He is the principle that holds all matter together. You know the God particle that scientists were searching for, and there'll be another name for it next. But the thing that's behind all things in creation, the thing that holds it all together is Christ. Because the fabric of reality and time and space were made through Christ. And therefore, when we say happiness is only found in serving him, it's not that God is this despotic ruler that needs us to serve him. 
and it just created a bunch of servants. It's not that. God is the great I am. So anything that comes from him is dependent on him because we're not self-sustaining. Nothing in creation is self-sustaining. Ultimately, everything depends on him because he is the creator and we are the creation. And therefore, for us, what does that mean? That means that ultimately, everything I need is in him and I'm only happy when I'm enjoying him and working with him because that's what I was created and designed to do. So when the lie came along and said, actually, you don't need him. You can do your own thing. It's like unplugging from the electricity and having a rechargeable battery that keeps going for a while, but ultimately will go dead. And that's what mankind did when he unplugged, when we unplugged from God. And that's what Paul is trying to say. This is the wisdom that you've been missing all this time. It's time to plug back in to him. And he has come to make that possible. Just want to go back to 1 Corinthians. Just turn with me back to verse 30. And I'm just looking, I want to look at three things that Paul says here. The question, how do we live well? Has a two-word simple answer. In Christ. How do we live well? Where is eudaimonia found? In Christ. That's the simple answer to it. And then Paul tells us what we have in Christ. He says in verse 30, Because of him, because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God. So Christ is the answer. And then he says what we have. Righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. I think these are three interesting words that Paul uses. This isn't an exhaustive exhaustive list, by the way. But Paul is picking out three main things that encompass all of our lives. Because our righteousness is very much about our past. Righteousness is right standing before God. It it speaks of our value and worth in this life. And our past contributes to that. If you speak to anybody, how they feel about themselves, their value in life, what they're worth, kind of our right to be here, to have a place in society and in the world and all the rest of it, really comes from the past that we've lived. And the past is the decider on how we feel about ourselves in the present. Is that generally true? For us in the kingdom of God, our past begins at the cross of Jesus Christ. It begins at that point of surrender. It's not that history didn't happen anymore, but that's now hidden in Christ. Our past starts at the cross, and our value and worth come from the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Today, there are lots of people trying to find their value and worth, lots of people that I know, seeking validation, but they they don't have it there. So where are you going to find it? Well, for lots of us, it's in our families, maybe our friendships, or work. You know, I know lots of people who really are just validated by their work. When they're gone, that's what they think their contribution to the world is. I was only here for a short time, but I did this work. And for some of them, it's more noble work than others, but it's still work. For some people, their validation is found maybe in their gender. Maybe it's in their sexual identity. Maybe it's in their relationships and what they get from other people. Some people, their validation is very much found in their online influence and the footprint that they have online, the number of friends that they have. If you're seeking validation in those things, you will always come up short. Always. And I think for us, we have to be those who don't let those things 
become something that we start to rely on in terms of how we feel about our place in this life and our value and our worth. And it's very easy to start to lean on those things. And it's Christ plus. It's Jesus plus some of those things. But it can only ever be just Jesus. My value and place in this life is because of him. Nothing else and no one else. And when we feel that way, when we know that to be the true, to be the truth, then it, it then means that the way that we relate to everything else in our life, we're not seeking and trying to get validation out of it all the time. Yeah. Do you know what we do? We instead are doing this. Yeah. We're giving out. Yeah. We're not trying to draw in. We're giving out because I know my value and worth. I don't need you to confirm that. Yeah. I'm just here to bless the world. Yeah. I'm here to bless you. I'm here to give because yeah. I have all the validation that I need from my loving father. And then he says sanctification. Sanctification. We talked about that earlier in the summer. We had two weeks, two, two messages on sanctification and talked about what that meant. But it, to sanctify is to separate, to make holy. And for us, the process of sanctification takes place when the Holy Spirit comes to live in us and he extricates the pollution of sin. Sin's like being stuck in an oil slick. You know when they get those birds on the beach and they try and wash them down and, and, they have, and it takes such a long time to get it out of everywhere, this oil. That's what sin is like. And the Holy Spirit, as the master surgeon comes, lives within us and says, look, I'm going to extract that sin from you and I'm going to, I'm, what's left behind is you, the one I made, who you're designed to be. And as I do that, I'm going to transform you into the image of Jesus Christ. From one degree of glory to another, I'm going to transform you so that you reflect his glory, but you are still you. And you bring the unique expression of that wonderful creator because of the work of the Holy Spirit. That's what sanctification is. And it's very much about our present. It's very much about what we give our lives to in the here and now. And for those that are engaged in the process of sanctification, what drives our life is becoming more like Jesus. And every year that passes, that needs to be the most important thing in our life. And I have to tell you, as the years roll by, it's easy to lose sight of that. It's easy to get to a level of maturity where we, even without saying it to ourselves, we said, I'm, I'm doing okay. I'm quite like Jesus. But we need to be those who are completely obsessed with becoming like Jesus. With him being revealed through us. We need to be those that are not resting on our laurels. That nothing else is top of our list in terms of what drives our life. And I think for each of us, it's a really healthy... And This is not... Please don't think this is a point of condemnation. It is not. It's a point for us to self-examine and say, actually... What is really driving my life right now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very good. And I, personally, that's not a question I feel I can answer just like that. No. I have to sit down and think about it. and think, well, I've got to think about what I spend my time doing. What am I prioritizing? And actually, if you start to consider those things, where's most of my time going? What do I spend my time thinking about? What do I really care about? What do I spend my money on? Then it starts to show me, actually, this is probably the most important thing in my life now. And that's a challenging conversation to have with ourselves. And it's something that we need to keep coming back to again and again. Our purpose is not found in anything in this world. It is found only in a concern for the kingdom of God. 
And brothers and sisters, I just don't want us to be those who are caught up in the cares of this world. Because that's not good soil. And our hearts need to be good soil. And we don't need to let the weeds entangle us. And the third thing is this, our redemption. Now we've been redeemed, but redemption is not yet complete. This isn't it, folks. We've been redeemed, but it's not over yet. It's not complete yet. Paul talks about this as the process of adoption. And that's complete and it's fulfilled. And we finally made it when the the perishable will be clothed with the imperishable. Who's looking forward to getting that super body? I can tell you as you get older, you get more excited (laughs) about this super body that doesn't get tired any longer, can walk through walls, doesn't have to climb stairs, things like that. Doesn't let out an involuntary noise every time you get up or sit down. There are many ways I've thought about this, this new body. But that's part of a coming redemption. And it's part of a coming Christ. Because unless we are taken home to be with him, when he comes back, that's what we're waiting for. And this is very much about our future and our future hope. And what Paul is saying here is this wealth of Christ you have is is a coming redemption. But again, the question we have to ask ourselves is, how much is that coming day, which we often hear the apostles speaking about their writings, the day of the Lord is coming. How often do we think about the coming day of the Lord? Now, when I was a kid, I, I, the, the sort of circles we, I grew up in, we were kind of, I went to bed most nights sort of worried that Jesus was going to come back at the end of the evening, to be honest with you. So I'd recommit my life to Jesus several times because I thought he's coming and it's imminent. And praise God, we don't have a, a, a culture and a climate like that in the where we're worried about the coming of the Lord. But equally, let's not be complacent. Because as life grows and as our families grow and we enjoy the wonderful things of this life, let's be honest, we sort of say, do you know what, Lord, if you could just give us a bit longer so we can just enjoy these things. There are lots of people around this world who don't have lives like that and they are very much looking for the coming of Jesus. There are lots of people who look around this world and see the suffering and just want him to come back and end it all. But it's in God's heart that none should perish. So God is giving time for us to reach out to as many as possible and show them the wisdom of God reflected in us. And we need to be those who are living with a greater sense of urgency of his return. We're not panicked. We're not worried. We're looking forward with expectancy. But what we're doing today is influenced by the fact he's coming back. He's coming. Are we ready? Are we spurring one another on, as it says in Hebrews, all the more as we see the day approaching? Are we encouraging each other because he's coming back? Are we helping each other get ready? Because this is the bride, and he's coming back for a ready bride. So are we really giving ourselves to that? Here's the wonderful thing. In this place, in the culture of this place, we need have no fear of the future. No fear whatsoever. And fear is embracing the world. Everyone you speak to, everyone I speak to, that is not in the kingdom of God, has an underlying fear about the future. And that's just getting worse. Because the world is moving at an ever faster, frenetic pace. 
and more and more things are happening and it's just becoming more chaotic. Sin is propagating itself and that is creating chaos and fear. But we need to be different. In this kingdom, we are those who are not unaware of those things, but we're not fearful of them because we know there is a coming king. There are children growing up worried about every aspect of life, about health, about the planet, about employment, about getting on the housing ladder. Fear, fear, fear. And we need to be those who are raising our children to trust the Lord. Because everything we have is because of him. Everything we need is because of him. One day he's coming back. We'll be saved because of him. So the contrast could not be clearer between the culture of God's kingdom, founded on the wisdom of man, and the culture of the kingdom of God, which is centered on Jesus. Our culture is not focused on self-fulfillment and self-happiness. It's centered on Jesus and enjoying him and serving him and loving him because we know that that is where life in abundance lies not in those other things. I just want to pray to close. I just would ask you just to close your eyes. Lord, we want to thank you. Father, I thank you because you are a loving father who sent an obedient son and because of him, we have righteousness. Lord Jesus, I want to thank you that you are a faithful son. And you promised us the Holy Spirit. And because of him, we're now being sanctified and transformed into his image and made who you created us to be. And Holy Spirit, we want to thank you because we are sealed in you until the return of Jesus. And because of that, Lord, because we have you as a guarantee, Lord, we can live in peace and security knowing that you are the one that's making us ready for the return of our glorious King. And Lord, we thank you that our past and our present and our future, all of these things are all hidden in Christ. And all that we need for those things, Lord, everything that we need is because of you. It's in you, Lord Jesus. So we thank you, Lord. And I just pray, Lord, that in the coming days, as we just consider these things, Holy Spirit, Would you speak into our lives and show us, Lord, what needs to change, what adjustments need to happen, Lord, where reliance on things needs to change, where a focus on you needs to come, Lord, so that we can reprioritize and ultimately, Lord, so that we can enjoy you more fully. And by your grace, we shall. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks for joining us today. Search for us online and get information about upcoming events and more great teaching.